Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and there is nowhere else I'd rather be than dishing with you. This show goes way beyond mere eating and drinking. We're on a mission to find the most scrumptious recipes, the most exciting places and new experiences, emerging food trends, the best sippers, oh, and mixers and more. And this week's conversation is guaranteed to be fabulous. Food is life, so create and savor yours. It is my goal to make you hungry And to help you think like a chef and cook like a pro. But whether you love to cook or love to eat, I like to say we can definitely be friends. So please check out my social at Chef Jamie Gwen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you'll find my shameless daily dish. And I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, soon to be new and improved. So stay tuned. Coming up. We have one uh, great talent, I will call her, and that's an understatement, a much beloved figure in the food industry. If you know, you know. She's called Tara Teaspoon, of course. Actually, uh, she goes by Tara Bench, and her new cookbook release is all a buzz. It's called Delicious Gatherings, and yes, Tara fans rejoice She is sitting down to share her best recipes for celebrations. And who isn't looking forward to celebrations right about now, right? Also, we are giving you the lowdown on, I think, a a very misunderstood and underloved wine grape. Yes. Oh, the ravishing Riesling. Never sipped enough. David Rosenthal, white winemaker for Chateau St. Michel. He is here with a Riesling update, so don't touch your dial. But let me inspire you, please. I'm all about informative, entertaining, delicious conversation. And I thought I would kick off today's show by telling you that aside from grilling a beautiful piece of salmon on a cedar plank, As the height of summer ends, you are cooking your fish all wrong. I said it. See, fall will be here soon. (laughs) And you might be standing in front of the fishmonger or the fish case at your supermarket and see these gorgeous shrimp or salmon or halibut. And you might be tempted to saute it or roast it. But wait, this is the year you have a few months left that you master olive oil poaching. Because until you have tasted the silky, beautiful succulence of olive oil poached fish, you just don't know what you're missing. And please don't change the station or shake your head at me because it's not greasy fried fish that I'm talking about. It's actually a technique that delivers tender, juicy, flavorful results, and it is neither difficult nor messy. So, please keep listening because you will master olive oil poaching and I think you will thank me. 
So olive oil poaching is all about the texture. And I actually use a foolproof three-step method for the silkiest, most luxurious fish that you might have ever tasted. And you can try it out with shrimp or salmon or halibut or tuna or more. Now, it works for a whole fish and with big, beautiful prawns just the same way. That's how super simple it is. So think, olive oil poached shrimp, fresh tomato sauce over pasta, oh, so good. Or olive oil poached salmon, smashed potatoes, broccolini for dinner tomorrow night, yum. How about olive oil poached halibut with a fennel puree or a cauliflower puree or a beautiful pumpkin puree because pumpkin season has begun. (laughs) Yes, we know the cappuccino or frappuccino or (laughs) the latte is back. And by the way, I love to olive oil poached tuna and serve it cold or on a sandwich with a Dijon balsamic vinaigrette. Now, poaching fish, gently cooking it in a liquid over low heat is a classic French technique. And traditionally, the poaching liquid is a light broth. It's known as a court bouillon in French. And the finished fish comes out delicious and light and flaky. And that classic technique is the foundation for a very different way of cooking fish, which is poaching in olive oil. Now, put simply... This method that I'm speaking of involves submerging a piece of fish or shrimp or scallops in a bath of warm olive oil and then cooking it in the oven at a low temperature to the perfect doneness. Now, I do start my olive oil warm and add the fish. Many chefs will actually cook in a very low and slow oven, but that takes an hour and a half and who has that time? So I'm going to share my foolproof method. Now the fish will emerge with this tender, silky texture and this beautiful, sweet flavor that I think is hard to achieve with any other cooking method. So here goes. Step one, you season the fish. You remove the fish from the refrigerator. You season it liberally with salt and pepper and you let it sit at room temperature for an hour. Not in the sun, not in the hottest part of your laundry room, but in the kitchen for an hour. It needs to come to room temperature. That's the first secret. Step number two, you heat olive oil over low heat until it reaches 120 degrees. Now you need the fish to be submerged. This is not copious amounts of olive oil. And just FYI, you can use the oil again uh, for olive oil poaching. In fact, you can use it a few times. I like to cool it, strain it, and store it in a mason jar in the fridge. And I use it three times over, waste not, want not. But you're going to heat oil in a large, shallow pan to 120 degrees using a candy or instant read thermometer. And then step number three is so easy. You add the fish to the warm olive oil and you immediately transfer the pan with the fish open, uncovered, to a 275 degree oven and you poach for exactly 25 minutes. That's it. Literally. All you have to remember is an hour at room temperature, 120 degree olive oil, add your fish, 25 minutes. The oven temp again to poach, 
is 275 degrees. You'll see some recipes for 250. I think it's too low. Okay, so there I said it, my chef's opinion. Now, the fish that is best for olive oil poaching is fish that's rich in flavor. So as I mentioned, salmon, tuna, shrimp, all fit the bill. And you want to make sure that your fish steaks or your fillets or your whole fish or your shrimp are at least three quarters of an inch thick. I think one inch thick is even better. And you want to use extra virgin olive oil for poaching because that rich flavor penetrates the fish. You can use a modest brand, not the one that you preciously drizzle over pasta at the end, but you do need, you know, quite a bit of it. And then you want to choose a straight side pan that will hold the fish in a single layer. You can crowd it, but you want to make sure that the pieces don't overlap. And it's about time that you learned this technique because one of the remarkable things about this technique, again, is that the timing is virtually foolproof. The magic number is 25 minutes. And the best indicator, by the way, for doneness is the appearance of white droplets of albumin, which is the protein on the outside of the fish. You can actually use a paring knife to make a little cut in the piece of the fish to visually check for doneness. And once you have understood this technique, you will see that a wide saute pan filled with olive oil offers opportunities to cook a few other things as well, like a whole head of garlic cut in half, cooked in the oil, makes creamy cloves that are suitable for spreading on bread alongside your fish. And it adds beautiful fragrance and flavor to the oil, of course. Now, carrots alongside the fish are tremendous. They turn soft and bright orange and they are so delicious. And really the possibilities are endless because I do not believe there is a better way to pay tribute to a perfectly fresh piece of seafood. So please try it out and let me know what you think and email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. Don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with recipes for delicious gatherings with the great Tara right after this. Don't go away. your fetish? Well, then I am supplying the tools, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This next conversation is guaranteed to be delicious. I am so delighted that this rock star is back. You see, Tara Bench, or Tara Teaspoon as she's lovingly called, has spent the last 20 plus years in food, in the food publishing industry with recipes and articles and food styling and TV appearances and more. Tara was the food editor for Martha Stewart Magazine and the food director of Ladies Home Journal Magazine. Impressive, right? And you've seen her everywhere. And needless to say, Tara knows 
How to Plan a Delicious Gathering. Her new cookbook release is entitled just that, Delicious Gatherings, full of recipes to celebrate together. And the book just released, it is beautiful. And I am delighted that Tara chose to grace this show again. So happy to have you back and congratulations. Um, The new baby, as we say in the industry, is gorgeous, Tara. Thank you so much. It's, yeah, they're they're labors of love, aren't they? But thanks for having me. This is great. Yes, of course. Thrilled. Um, It is a gorgeous inspiration to cook. That's how I described your book to my best friend who I talked to on the phone late last night while I was reading cover to cover. And we're celebrating eating together again. And I know we are all delighted to be able to do so, you especially. I am. You know, I think everyone is just craving to get together. And when we get together, isn't it wonderful to share food and drink? And it just spurs conversation and memories. And food is my world. Mm. And I think it is a big part of everyone's world. Yes. And it's connection. I think we all realized with enough Zoom and Teams calls and otherwise during the pandemic that we were craving connection. And when you can translate that to food, which is what your bountiful table is all about, what a beautiful thing to be able to celebrate. Um, The the book is gorgeous. And before we jump right in, because I selfishly chose every recipe I can't wait to make, um, what has been on your plate the most throughout the summer? Just take us into the transition of seasons. Oh, good question. I love eating seasonally. And so definitely this summer, it's been salads and Mm. slaws. I've... um, after writing a cookbook, I gained a few extra pounds, so I have been eating quite healthfully. So, yes, I've been doing protein and salads, but always on my plate, I love vegetable side dishes and, you know, green beans and peas and roasted carrots mm. and grilled peppers and mushrooms and tomatoes. So I definitely have been making a lot of my own recipes and then just kind of filling the voids with delicious salads and grilled meat. Yeah, I love that. I love that moment where there's no recipe needed. Like the everything comes out of the fridge and it all comes together. And there's something beautiful about that. And I I feel that most during summer. I think you're right. You know, put something on the grill and forage for all the (laughs) things that go with it, right? I feel like that's my summer as well. Yeah. And I think that's, a fun thing about a cookbook is just as you're saying that I'm thinking of all the things that I was able to share in this cookbook that are so customizable that mm. you can throw a pasta together with a few things in your refrigerator or make a burger with new flavors like Thai banh mi flavors mm. with just pantry staples and vegetables you're already keeping in your fridge. So I love those too and it's easy to um, get creative and have fun. Yes, I agree. Embracing that last minute is so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And then you took me right to it. As we transition into fall, you are all about lots of different flavors on the plate. It's one of the things I love about how you cook because it's not at all single subject. I feel like you get a taste of everything and there's sweet or heat or spice. There's a combination. And that is a definite testament to the fact that you love meza for dinner, as do I. 
Um, so the, the, the book kicks off with a mezza dinner. This is what I consider like, I don't really want my own plate. I just want a bite of what everybody else is eating at the table when you go to a restaurant. I do. I would just like an empty plate, please, so that I can yes. graze. And that's what mezza dinner is. Th- this is beautiful. Is. Like, I can't wait to eat from the first 22 pages of your book. Oh, thank you. And, you know, it's shareable, it's grazeable, it's crowd gatheringable. Yes. You know, I, I love that style of food as well. And mm. that Mediterranean and Middle Eastern food just lends itself to bringing people together around that table full of nibbles and dips and mm. bites. Mm. And so I, I love eating that way. And I wanted to share that in my book with some, like you said, some of my favorite flavors that really are made from simple things, like my harissa tomato confit. It is just tomatoes and herbs. But you know what? I added a little harissa paste to that, and it just made this amazing dish with depth of flavor. And all you need is a spoonful or two of this fun pepper paste. Right. And it's in a tube in your pantry, alluding to what you Mm -hmm. said before, right? And you you pull it out, but it, it changes the entire dynamic of the tomatoes. I can't wait to make the cashew hummus you share with lemon marinated mushrooms. And I, I was surprised because we talk so much vegan today, right? And cashew milk and cashew butter and otherwise. This is a traditional hummus, garbanzos, yeah. but you add cashew butter to it. It has to have the most extraordinary mouthfeel. Oh, it's so creamy and silky smooth, especially the way I I have a fun technique for making the hummus where you overcook the chickpeas to make them really soft. Um, But this recipe came about, it was funny, I have a very classic, delicious recipe for hummus on my website, um, terrateaspoon.com, and I make it all the time. But my sister-in-law does not like tahini, which is a huge part of hummus. Yes. And so I made her a a batch one time and swapped cashew butter and I thought, well, this is life changing. Oh, how so smart. I sort of just honed that recipe to create this beautiful, like smooth mm. flavored hummus that then I can add a fun topping to and the lemonated, le- I can't even speak. <laughs> my mouth is watering. I know me too. Lemon marinated mushrooms yes. really add that little bit of, you know, mm. piquant delicious Mm. flavor. Mm. There is an Italian restaurant, Tara, near where I live. And when you sit down at the table, uh, I I think an exercise that is um, often lost today, they put down a plate of these lemony, raw, thinly sliced Mm. button mushrooms. And they're just so super simple. They're a year round staple, but they, they get put down on the table. And I'll tell you, I wait with bated breath when I put my <laughs> napkin on my lap. And we just went recently after a, a long respite from the pandemic. And I couldn't wait for the mushrooms and that oh. lemony mushroom. You excited that for me. And I can't wait to make that and zatar cauliflower with golden raisins. Oh, I feel a delicious gathering coming on. Tara Teaspoon is here and we're dishing more right after the break.
Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. A very happy weekend to you. Tara Bench, lovingly known as Tara Teaspoon, is here. Her second cookbook release, Much A Buzz, entitled Delicious Gatherings, has just become available. And so we're sharing recipes for celebrations as we lead into the holiday season and because every day is worthy of a wonderful meal. And would you please talk pita at home? We're seeing so much of it and we can learn from the best from you. There's something really magical about watching it puff, is there not? Oh, absolutely. And this pita recipe is it's made for the home cook, right? Pita bread that you get at a bakery or in packages is usually cooked in such a high heat oven, often a wood-fired oven. And this is for the home cook. It turns out just as delicious. It puffs up beautifully in Mm. the oven and it has yogurt in it to create this very manageable soft dough. And so you do get the pockets, but you also get a really puffy, soft, bready pita. Mm. And it's, simple to make. Um, I think the that added yogurt really helps any level of home cook make pita successfully. Fabulous. Uh, tell us about your taco night gone wild. If there's any invitation I would like, I think it would like, be, it would be Fiesta Mexicana at Tara Bench's house. I, me too. Yeah. If I be over, if you, if you make all this, um, these, I will say when we made these for the photo shoot, all of these delicious tacos, they were gone in seconds. Oh, seconds, And I'm that's sure. what I love about tacos. They're easy to eat. They're fun. They have so many flavors. And I wanted to bring that together and mm. say, throw a Mexican feast. Have several different kinds of tacos and salsas and dips. A lot of them are make-ahead. A lot of my tacos um, offer the option to make the protein or the meat several days ahead. And then use them, use it in the tacos later. So my orange cumin carnitas and the brisket can easily be made ahead and then turned into tacos, which is so fun. And so you can create a Mexican fiesta. Yes. And of course, for me, I need dips. I need salsas. Mm-hmm. And my dips and salsas in the book play kind of two roles. They're dips for chips, but also my taco toppings. And so depending on the tacos you're making, uh, different dips like the pineapple taco topper, the serrano chili avocado cream go really well with the carnitas. But I've got to have, you know, definitely a spicy fun salsa. And so my spicy El Paso and mango blender salsa goes so well with brisket and salmon. Mm. And so they kind of play that dual role of dip and topping. Yes, and I want to use those recipes for the brisket and the salmon interchangeably for Sunday supper, Mm -hmm. which you Mm -hmm. have an entire chapter dedicated to. I love Sunday supper, by the way, and I'm trying to instill that in my son. I find often, like, if I do a braised meat for Sunday supper, it becomes the leftovers for Taco Tuesday, and they're Mm -hmm. they're interchangeable, right? So, um, although there's nothing interchangeable with your cream spinach. Oh, with the toasted garlic shards oh. on top. Oh. <gasps> I am such a lover of cream spinach. That looks so good, Tara. Oh, my oh God. good. It was tried and tested with my family, and <laughs> they all approved it. So it went in the book. But it, it is one of my favorites, too. It's very delicious. 
Oh, yes. Okay, as we embrace the season for fall, by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late. We are celebrating delicious gatherings, uh, both literally and figuratively. The new cookbook, much anticipated, just released from Tara Teaspoon, also known as Tara Bench, of course. We know you follow at Tara Teaspoon. Uh, Recipes to celebrate together. Can we please talk Italian gnocchi bacon and cheese soup? Absolutely. Oh, my. <laughs> so one of my favorite things is a potato and bacon soup. I That is comfort to me. I love it. And I played around with swapping gnocchi for potato chunks yes. and then created a luscious, creamy, mm. Italian-flavored broth. Mm. And it kind of stole the show. My regular old potato soup is no longer. I love this one. It's got the rich flavor of bacon, but then the added cheese, like a, you know, Parmesan cheese with that gnocchi just makes a very rich, comforting stew. Oh my. That is like perfect weeknight cold weather fair to me. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Oh, I can't wait. And then I need to go backwards in the day, please rewind. Uh, because if you're gathering for brunch or you're building breakfast on a weekend, why wouldn't we make your churro waffles with whipped ricotta and dolce de leche? I am a, oh, I am a sucker for anything with the word churro in it. An actual churro, churro flavor. I'll run for a churro, Tara. (laughs) Well, run for these waffles then because they are worth it. It's a light waffle. You know, churros kind of are that almost eggy, light structure, and these waffles are reminiscent of that. And so Mm -hmm. they begged to be coated in cinnamon sugar, and then you need something creamy with that. So I topped it with a whipped, smooth, creamy ricotta. But I can't eat a churro without a little dulce de leche. So, of course, I drizzled that on top. Over the top, good. Yeah, a lot of my breakfast are inspired by eating out in New York and having brunch in New York City where I live. I saw the babka. You had me at babka, yes. I mean, what New York bakery shouldn't have a babka? And I love a chocolate babka with a little bit of cinnamon in it. Mm. And this is the ultimate treat. And now you can make it at home. Yeah, love it. We can because of you, so thank you. Um, (laughs) Before I let you go, please talk holidays with us. They will be here before we know it. You have a beautiful holiday dinner chapter, and it pays um, homage to tradition, but it also mm-hmm. has elevated flavors and ideas. And this sausage stuffing of yours, by the way, everybody talks about. <laughs> it's true. It's famous. It's, true. it's a good one, I have to say, and I'm glad the buzz is out there. It um, has almost every spice you can imagine, mm-hmm. every seasoning. Just open your spice cupboard, and you probably have every jar you need. It's just this moment where we get to add all the flavor into one dish. Mm. And with a little bit of chopped dried fruit and savory sausage, it is just the most dreamy Mm. stuffing to Mm. go along with Mm. a turkey dinner. Yeah, I love that uh, balance, the counterbalance of the sausage with the dried apricots, Mm. as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and then you've got all this punch of flavor soaked into the sourdough. Oh my. Last it's but pretty divine. Oh uh, yeah, it looks it. I'm, I might not wait till Thanksgiving. Um, last but not least, uh, maple hazelnut pie. 
How beautiful. I, I love maple and I embrace maple syrup throughout the autumn season. Yes. And then I don't think hazelnuts are appreciated enough. Oh, they're kind of a glamorous nut. Yes, I think. they are. You know, we all, let's be honest, we all eat them in Nutella. Right, right. We all love them, but right. Yes, but we don't ever pull them out of that chocolate world and appreciate them, like you said. And this is kind of my twist on a classic pecan pie. It's got that same caramely texture, but it's hazelnuts, which feel so Mm, elegant. Yes. But they're easy to use. And then that maple takes the place of that, you know, brown sugar flavor Mm. in a pecan pie. And it is a mild, sweet ode to fall that is perfect with the hazelnut. Yeah, it looks ooey-gooey yummy. It really does. Mm -hmm. Everything you make always jumps off the page and my phone and the computer. Um, And one of the things, and as I mentioned, of a lot of things that everyone loves about you and your style, um, I very much appreciate your humility. I love that you cook like the rest of us, that you are a real cook in your own kitchen. And there is just something beautifully warm about the way that you share recipes. And um, this book is a, is a gorgeous example of that. So um, I will savor it. And I know everyone else will. Just released the second cookbook from Tara Bench or Tara Teaspoon entitled Delicious Gatherings, Recipes to Celebrate Together, out now. Uh, You can learn more at tarateaspoon.com. You can follow on social for all the deliciousness at Tara Teaspoon. It's from sit-down dinners to intimate brunches to elaborate buffets for bigger crowds from small to large. There is just something for everyone in this book and Tara encouraging you to eat together, there might be no more yes. delicious way. Yes. Tara, it's always so lovely to have you on the show. And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for all your compliments and such a fun conversation about food. <laughs> yes. Next time you're making tacos, call, please. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> As the delicious conversation continues, there's lots more to dig into right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Welcome back and cheers, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. On this show, we're passionate about wine, so raise your glass and let's toast to Riesling. I believe that Riesling is one of the world's most misunderstood and maybe underappreciated wine grapes. While Riesling can make some of the world's greatest sweet wines, there is so much more to this high-quality, age-worthy grape varietal than meets the eye. So we're sipping and savoring today with David Rosenthal, the white winemaker for Chateau Saint-Michel. And we're dishing on the rise of Riesling, debunking the myths, introducing you to new palate profiles, and expanding your wine knowledge. 
Winemaker David Rosenthal is at the helm of production for Chateau St. Michel's delicious Riesling. His illustrious wine career has taken him around the globe to combine his passion and talent for the art and science of winemaking. And in 2015, he was named the White Winemaker. He is doing grand things for the world of Riesling, and so he's here to wax poetic on the virtuous grape and share his knowledge. And I'm very glad to have you on the show, David. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Um, I love the history of Chateau Saint-Michel. Established in 1934, right? You are the, the pioneer of grape growing in Washington State. But what I don't believe great enophiles know is that Chateau Saint-Michel is the world's leading Riesling producer, that you've been making it uh, for more than 45 years. Yeah, it's it's something that we really started with from an early stage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when grapes were first planted in Washington, specifically, you know, classic European grape varieties from the from vinifera family, Washington was thought to be this very cold place, particularly in the winter, uh, someplace where, you know, it, it was just a much cooler climate. And so Riesling, making its home in Germany, where it's, you know, much northern... Uh, much further north and also a, a fairly cool climate, Riesling seemed like a natural fit. Um, mm. I think over time, over the last 50 years, as we've sort of learned more about Washington State as a growing region, it's not quite as cool as people thought. The winters aren't quite as harsh as people thought. But it is a great place for planting Riesling, and we continue to find better and better places for it every year. Which I think is uh, very much uh, a testament to the growth of Riesling. I, I think we are still understanding what Riesling has to offer, I should say, um, because interestingly enough, there are a tremendous amount of myths. So I- I'd like to debunk them first and foremost. All Rieslings are not sweet, Right. This is one that I think it's it's one of those things that just perpetuates itself over time. I, I, I don't really understand why, um, because Riesling is it, truly made in in all styles, and in the places where Riesling does well, it's it's made in styles from bone dry all the way to super sweet. And so, you know, the the super sweet dessert wines that sort of people have in their minds, um, it's such a small percentage of of the Riesling that's actually produced. If you go to places like Germany right now, you know, dry Rieslings are much more in vogue right. than they were even 20 years ago. Most of the Rieslings that come out of Australia are, are very dry. And I think we've had amazing success here in Washington, you know, across the whole range of Rieslings, but particularly with our dry styles, because they're just, they're perfectly balanced, they're very food friendly, and yet at the same time, you know, you can just sit down on the on your back patio in the summertime and, mm. and have a glass and, it, and, and keep it very simple. That's the other myth that I think needs to be debunked about Riesling. And if you would differentiate for us, sweetness and fruitiness are very different uh, palate profiles. Yeah, and it makes sense why they get confused, right? When, when we eat a banana or an apple or a pear... Right? We're not only tasting and smelling those aromas of that fruit, but we're tasting the inherent sweetness and sugar that's in that fruit. So it's, it's understandable why they get confused, but when we talk about fruitiness and Riesling and these citrus flavors and stone fruit aromas, um, you know, grapes, just like you know, a pear or a lemon, mm-hmm. everything is a fruit. They have very similar chemical compounds in all of them. And as we ferment the Riesling, we sort of allow these these compounds to come out and they give us the perception of citrus or stone fruit 
Um, and so when we talk about fruitiness, we're really talking about those fresh fruit aromas. Well, I think you're doing beautiful things. So kudos to you, uh, taking Riesling to a, a whole new level. And I think really embarking on a, 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 a higher level of commitment to the fact that this is a gorgeous grape that deserves the attention uh, that you're bringing to it. Um, for those that don't know, it always amazes me that the Columbia Valley in Washington, where Chateau St. Michel produces, uh, actually produces more Riesling than any other American wine region. And today, Chateau St. Michel wines number more than 60. They are found in all 50 states, more than 100 countries worldwide. Um, and if you haven't been, it is a beautiful destination to visit. So stop in, see David, learn about these beautiful Rieslings and this dry Riesling from Chateau St. Michel, Columbia Valley, um, which I think is just the most absolutely inviting, elegant, delicious chef's wine I have tasted. Um, I will open a bottle tonight and toast to you, David. I appreciate that. Thank yeah, you so much. Yes, of course. And please continue to do um, the delicious work um, that you are doing. And I hope to see you at the winery soon. Thank you for highlighting the beauty that is Riesling. Cheers to you. Cheers to you. Appreciate it. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that you found gastronomic pleasure in listening because a meal is a terrible thing to waste, don't you think? And let me leave you with this. It's my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of uh, culinary conversation. And it's always a super simple three, four or five ingredient recipe because I'm busy and you're busy, but we still want to eat well. And so with apple season upcoming, I love a dip. Don't you love a dip? This would actually be great for long football games. You'll want to save this recipe because it would also lend itself well to Halloween and Thanksgiving. It's really divine and it happens to be healthy. Don't tell. It is a healthy caramel apple dip and it combines the beauty of dates blended until very well pureed with vanilla and some low-fat cream cheese and some low-fat sour cream and some good pumpkin pie spice. And then you dip with reckless abandon, sliced apples or your favorite fruit or put out graham crackers or Nilla wafers or something yummy and call it dessert. I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, and I will meet you here at the table next weekend when I guarantee there is more fabulous food to celebrate. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I do hope you continue to eat well. Well.